Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have a full crew here in the studio. Morning, Bob. Good morning. Dustin. Morning. Philip. Hey, Brad. Ryan. Morning, everybody. And Dr. Bob Weber is back with us. Morning, Bob. Hey, how's it going? It's great to have Bob with us because this is actually our fifth year of doing the podcast and Bob started doing them with us and as his job has evolved, he's not been able to be on as frequently, but we love to have him back with us. It's actually our 267th episode, so we're going to talk in a minute. Dustin's got some, I think, some questions from some of our previous episodes of what has changed through the process. We'll also get to a couple listener questions today, one on twinning and one on hair shedding, both of which we really enjoy because that's one of the things that started this process was getting responses to listeners, being able to share information. And I wanted to ask you guys' perspective, kind of How did this podcast start? How did we end up doing this? And what have you learned along the way? And Bob, since you're our guest, I'm going to you first. Well, I think maybe start with what have we learned? And I think even in broader extension programming, too prepared sometimes is a bad thing. Well, we're not too prepared. Right? We're not now. We were before. We're not now. I think I think he was giving us a compliment on not being too prepared to do these podcasts. Extemporaneous requires extemporaneous. That's exactly right. So, And we have gotten a little bit better about prepping before. If we get those listener questions, we'll research, look up some information, do some other things. Bob, what about you? Well, I think what Dr. Weber was talking about was when we're really interacting with producers and veterinarians out in the field, one of the things we discovered was we, from an academic background, tended to talk too much, tended to provide more information, more background information than really what was asked. And so I think one of the things is communication is still one of the most challenging things for humans to do well. And when we try to really provide information from you know research settings, from the from the published literature, and then turn that into actionable information. That's actually one of the difficult steps. And we're hoping that we're learning as we go along that in this kind of outreach role, how to simplify, direct. And then when the answer is, well, it's way more complicated than we can cover in a podcast, we do want people to go to the <coughs> newsletter and other sites where they can get additional information. So how did this start, Dustin? Oh, that's a great question. That was five years ago. I can't even remember <laughs> what I did last week, let alone five years ago. No, I think it started way back when you know we had a, an advisory board meeting and talking about the communication components, and we just started looking at, you know, we do our normal conferences, we can write newsletters, we've done that, but what's something different? And, you know, this was obviously a lot different than any one of us had ever been involved with before, and so I think that's how it probably all evolved. Yeah, it started, and it started, too, with us, and, and Bob kind of mentioned this, but we would talk a little bit too long, a little bit too academic, so the first three or four episodes that we recorded, we actually threw away because they weren't very good. And then we evolved to more of a conversational style. Philip and Brian, you guys have, have been also podcasting for several years. What have you learned through the process or what's your what's your take? I guess for me, I, I always come in here and I guess I'm a little bit impressed with the team we have, right? So we all bring a little bit different perspective. If you haven't listened, we have the Ask the Experts that we, where we actually disagree, you know? And so I think it's good to get different viewpoints and different perspectives on a lot of these issues. Like Bob said, a lot of these things are complicated so there usually isn't one right answer, although Brad's scoring system would say there is. But <laughs> but yeah, I, I like that we all come with different perspectives, and I learn a lot walking out of here every week when we record this. I think that's what makes it fun, too, is you, is you have everybody with different perspectives, different areas of expertise. And I'm like you. I'm impressed that we come in, we have questions, you guys have answers. Philip? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with Brian. I mean, I joined in, what was it, about year three or so when, when I started participating. And yeah, just bring 
bringing a lot of different perspectives to it and you know come in you kind of feel like a little nervous about okay what what is this really about this is the first time i've ever podcasted and kind of like what do i need to talk about and how well prepared do i need to be and then you get in here and it's just it's a conversation and it just it's much more smooth and relaxed than you think See, I was following a page out of Weber's playbook. He said not to prepare you too much. I don't think I prepared you at all. I said, hey, Philip, you want to come on and join me? (laughs) I think the other thing, just thinking back on, you know, five years ago, we were over at KDA, right? And one of the objectives that we found as an kind of ancillary benefit was it got all the team together once a week, right? So we would have the post meeting that was a little wrap up of the podcast, but also for the team to connect as well, because Dustin and I were both kind of on main campus in different buildings. And so it was a a good opportunity to get everybody together. Absolutely. And it's a blast. And I enjoy it, have enjoyed working with you guys the past several years, and it makes it fun to come in and have those conversations. So let's jump in topics today and let's do some listener questions. And if you have a listener question, you can email us at bci at ksu.edu because we appreciate getting those and being able to answer those because we know the questions are relevant to you as well as other listeners. First questions about hair coats and on this one it's a fall calving herd coming into spring this time of year. The calves are just starting to be weaned and while the cows have shed off and the calves are in good shape, the calves aren't shedding off their hair coat as well as possible. What do you guys think is going on in this case? And Bob, I'm going to start with you. And if it's genetic component or are there genetic components to hair shedding? Well, there are actually. Um, hair shedding is a, a heritable trait. In fact, there's if you go out in the, the recent media, there's a, a slick hair gene that's being selected for and, and actually potentially gene edited into some populations. So that plays a role. But you know, the fact that the cows have shed off and the calves haven't, maybe it's a if, if it's a single sire herd, there might be a, a genetics interaction there as well, but uh, it is it is a heritable trait. So it's heritable, but maybe not likely in this case if the cows have already shed off. Yeah. What about the other thing that pops into my head, Bob, is parasites. We've talked about parasites, and Bob and Brian, you can both chime in. Is Do you think parasites play a role in this? Possibly, but not in this situation necessarily, because uh, the calves are in good body condition, it sounds like, from the question, and the cows are too. So I don't think parasite load is damaging enough to affect weight gain, which probably means it's not also it's also not affecting hair loss. So yes, parasitism can be severe enough that you'll see, you know, a dull hair coat with lack of shedding off. And that's an animal that's really being debilitated by those parasites. And so that doesn't sound like it in this situation. Yeah. Any other thing in this situation is it sounds like it's all the calves, right? And so, you know, to have all of the calves with a severe parasite burden, I would expect to see some other things as well. Now, the question was the listeners said they weren't really worried. They had dewormed recently, so again, probably not likely, but they said because the calves are fleshy, they don't think they're wormy. That's not a very sensitive indicator of parasite loads, so I think in this case, we're all probably like, ah, I wouldn't worry about it too much. It's probably environmental. They just haven't shed yet. Give them a while, they probably will, but I don't know that I'd completely take it off my list. It would be, I would look for other tests to go verify that if I got down the road a little further and still felt like it was an issue. So you could have a problem with parasites even if the calves are in decent flesh. Yes. That's what yep. you're saying. Okay, Philip, they're running down my list. What about mineral deficiencies of some sort? Would that play a role? Well, copper can. Copper can affect hair coat, color, hair shedding, and things like that. So that's a possibility. It seems a little bit odd that the cows would 
be copper adequate and the calves would be copper deficient if that's the situation. So unless, you know, potentially the calves aren't consuming any mineral, I mean, we're about ready to wean, so we've got five, 600 pound calves, you know, they're not getting very much mineral through the milk anymore, that's for sure. So that could be an issue if they're not consuming the mineral mix that's out there. But then one of the things that pops in my head, it really is the forage type. Are they on fescue? It doesn't say in the question, but fescue can definitely affect hair shedding. And my experience understanding, calves are more sensitive to that endophyte infection, that ergovaline, than mature cows are. And so that could be part of the difference in why cows shed off and the calves haven't. Yeah, especially if they put up kind of late season fescue hay last year that might you know, have a pretty high endophyte content in it. Mm-hmm. That, that's a good point. Phil. Yeah, if they're feeding it, feeding the end of last year's hay, or if they're out on fescue, and it's really not the fescue, and you mentioned it, but it's the ergot that's in there that yeah. is causing the problem toxicity-wise. So if basically we kind of ran down the list, and we don't have a solid answer for this question, but probably merits a little further investigation. And the other thing that may play a role, depending on where you are in the country, is the seasonality. Some parts of the country have had a little bit longer, cooler spring, and those calves just haven't responded yet. So give them a little time. If they look like they're doing good, maybe consider the fescue. So good answers there, guys. Lots of different things to think about. I wanted to jump in. Dustin, I know, and I don't know, you've got questions. I don't know the topics of your questions for today, but I know you've prepared. I So I went back and listened to, there's a whole bunch of episodes across the five years where we've asked questions. And so I went back and I pulled a few of those episodes, questions that we asked, and I updated to 2022 numbers. All right. Okay. So the first one, we'll talk about trade. We've talked even about trade actually earlier this year. But so I want to know globally, what are the top four beef exporting countries just in metric tons? The leading exporting countries? U.S. The leading exporting countries just in metric tons in 2022. And then we'll compare that to 2018. All right. So I'll say Brazil. U.S. I think Argentina's up there. Canada. Oh. Australia. 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 <clears throat> Australia probably yeah, displaces good. Canada, yeah. actually. Yeah. It's four, right? We got Brazil, US, Australia, Argentina, and Argentina. You're close. Brazil is number one. US is number two. Number four is Australia. You're missing number three. So it's not right. beef is a broad term. India. Um, India. India. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> water buffaloes always uh, trip us up a little. So how does that compare to 2018? I don't know that's changed all that much. I think maybe Brazil maybe has passed the U.S. That'd be f- the flip-flop. Brazil is still number one in 2018. Hmm. U.S. is number two. No. Number four. Really? Wow. So Aust- was Australia two? India two? Australia? India two, Australia three. three U.S. four. So Australia same had, four, the order changed. Yeah. Australia, had, I think they had maybe back-to-back drought years, and then they had to liquidate the herd. And that, but I've heard that their numbers are going They're back, going back up. So. The prices have been crazy down there. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. <clears throat> All right, so that was exporters. Let's talk about importers in 2022. Who are the four largest importers of beef? Japan. Uh, and I'm going to say China, China and or Hong Kong. Are they separate together? Separate no, same, same. China. Korea. Yeah. Korea. I think U.S. US. Right up yeah, there. I think the U.S. was on the Because we import a whole lot of lean for hamburger. Well, that's a good point. So China, number one. Number two, U.S. Number three, Japan. And number four, South Korea. Hey, we did. Nice. Right. Yeah. Got all of them. Was that the same in 2018? You know, I forgot to actually record those numbers, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say they were. Say they are. 
All right, so now we're going to move into just U.S. beef exports. Uh, can anybody guess how much? This is probably not even a fair question. Can anybody guess how much we exported in 2022? In dollars or pounds? Either yes. or. Either or. We've got them both. <laughs> Did you know the answer to one and not the other? <laughs> yeah. If you had just no, picked I one, just, you could have <laughs> copped out. It's a strategy. It's that's, time, right? that's a much tougher question. The range of possibilities is so much bigger. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm going to answer it in a way that you didn't ask it, but that's okay. I'm going to say we we exported about eight to ten percent back then, and now we're at ten to twelve. I think it's gone up oh, a little bit. I think we're higher than oh, that. Are we we're closer a, to fifteen percent? I think a third of the value of beef produced in the United States comes from overseas. Oh, well, so that again, it goes back to dollars versus pounds too. You guys aren't all right, guys. All right, one point four seven million metric tons last year. One point four seven. One point three five in 2018 so we went up a little bit but the value went up quite a bit 8.3 versus 11.7 billion billion Billion. with With a b B. wow yeah so then actually i do have all those countries so who was our leading export markets in 2022 who were the top five korea in terms of metric tons okay china china China. hong kong korea Mm. japan it's three Mexico. Mexico. Yeah, I was going Mexico. Mexico. Canada. Those are the five. All right. Japan was number one. Uh, South Korea, number two. China, Hong Kong, number three. Mexico, number four. And Canada, number five. Now, that's in metric tons. (coughs) If you look at dollars, South Korea is number one. China, Hong Kong is number two. Japan is number three. And then Mexico and Canada. Well, it, it is important to kind of know who our main trading partners are because uh, we're trying to meet, meet the needs of those markets. Well, and the exports have gone up, but when you look at it in metric tons versus the dollars, that's more than just, it sounds like more than just price change, but we're actually exporting different amounts because depending on what meat you export, the dollar value, that's all over the board. And that has changed in the last five years as well as the uh, amount or percent of production that gets exported, which is what you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think if you take it back to a per carcass basis, I'm going to throw a number out there, but I think somewhere around $300 per carcass is due to exports. I mean, that's a huge chunk of, of dollars. Three to $350. I think so that last, was some of the stuff. Last that, November, I think we talked about that. It was about 360 a carcass. Yeah. So it definitely has an impact on the price that the producers receive. Which we've talked about before, but that impacts everybody because it's not like we're importing single whole carcasses produced by a person or entity it is we're importing exporting parts of carcasses so i did i'm working on another project but in 2022 the average price of a tongue which i didn't realize was this expensive but it was was a nine dollars nine or ten dollars a pound Hmm. Uh, wow so but not in the u.s but not in the u.s well i guess i don't know i don't purchase tongues i I can't (laughs) really say i don't think many people in the u.s purchase tongue that's the excellent and i think those are good summary questions it's great to look at how that has changed and progressed over time and i think you're you're exactly right bob thinking about where our beef goes is important as we start planning and continue planning and bob weber you've done a lot of work with genetics planning it's a long-term game so knowing where those markets are and there's some change in order but a lot of stability in who we're exporting to and who we're importing from so I did want to get to, we had one other listener question, and, and I'm going to 
read this one and, and then we can have some discussion here relative to the uh, implications or what you guys think. It's from a producer finishing up the calving season and they've had quite a few twins this year. They retain their own replacements. They emphasize calving ease, fertility, and longevity EPDs when they're selecting bulls. They have an understanding that twinning is fairly heritable. Is the emphasis on fertility when they pick bulls affecting their twinning rates in females that they keep back? And are there other environmental factors that could affect twins? So Bob, I'm, I'm gonna go to Larson. I'm gonna go to you first and ask, tell us from a reproductive perspective, what are the causes of twins? Or why do we see twins in cattle? Yeah, the most common reason we will see twins is two ovulations rather than one. The other, in a, you know, kind of using human examples, you've got twins that are, are fraternal, fraternal or identical. Or identical. And, and identical would be a single embryo gets fertilized and then early in the process it splits and becomes twins. More likely is two uh, eggs are ovulated at the same time. Typically, we would have one. Both eggs get fertilized, and then they be, they're basically just full siblings. They're full brother and sister. So the most common is double ovulation. And yes, there is a, there's a genetic component to that. There's an environmental component to that. If you wanted to select for more twinning in your herd, you could make that adjustment over a few generations if you do it specifically. I think the question would imply, well, are we doing it accidentally by selecting for fertility? Yeah, probably. Yeah, Weber. Yeah, I think so. You know, if you look back in in genetics history, the Meat Animal Research Center in Clay Center, Nebraska, actually had a twinning population where they selected specifically for increased twinning rate, and they got that herd to somewhere north of forty percent twinning rate, so pretty substantial. And it was all driven by increased ovulation rate. So they would go through and actually scan ultrasound, scan heifers, and find those that were you know multiple ovulators and early on in that process and over you know three four generations substantially moved ovulation rate so that's a potential possibility uncorrelated well or in the case of you're selecting for and fertility is a broad term so i'm not sure mm -hmm. what right you know, uh, heifer pregnancy is not likely a very good candidate for this particular impact but you know cow longevity or some kind of reproductive rate although most breeds don't have a you know ovulating rate epd so yeah. So we're not specifically measured, but some of those things lumped in fertility could be associated with it. And as you said, they're saving their heifers, they're picking for it. Could be some associations there. Brian and Philip, what do you guys think about the potential environmental factors? Are there environmental factors that could affect twinning? Yeah. So nutrition is, is one of those. <clears throat> as far as we've done research looking at heifer development and puberty, and if, if we get more glucose flow in the blood, higher blood glucose levels in those animals by feeding higher energy diets or by feeding an ionophore or something like that that will promote glucose synthesis in the liver, then we can increase fertility and improve or reduce the age of puberty, things like that. And so that could be a situation. I mean, so I'm not sure if this is a spring calving herd. I guess it would be a spring calving herd if they're just finishing up calving. So thinking a year ago, I'm trying to think why it would particularly be different this year than in other years. And I don't know, with the drought last year, I'm not sure well, but, it, but, why we but had. they're in an environment where it's usually really wet, drier grass ends up being, you know, 
there's not as much of it, but crude protein tends to be better, you know. Yeah, sugars. Short could, grass prairie versus medium prairie kind of contrast. Sugars could be higher too in that during that spring cat or spring breeding season too. So that would be where I would think would possibly be the the difference between this year and, and other years. Hard to imagine a big genetic component if it's just come on this year. Unless there's been but, some other big change. Well, and it sounds like it's come on this year, but this is this is something you can accidentally increase and promote over time. And so it may have been they had a few twins last year or a couple years ago, and they keep those back as replacements. And, you know, like we said, there's a genetic component. And just like in people, twins, that people that were twins are probably more predisposed to having twins. So it could be a problem that – a problem. could be something in their herd that's increased subtly over time, and now they've just kind of reached a tipping point where it's – more obvious too there's sort of a, a, a natural antagonism though right if if you've got a lot of twins you're going to produce a fair number of free martin heifers right so a twin to a bull so you kind of have a tendency to sort of naturally weed those out you shouldn't keep those yep, because replacements. fraternal twins you could end up with a heifer and a bull yep. and then while they're in the early stages of development the bull is going to secrete some some of his hormones that get in the fetal blood making the heifer infertile in over 90 percent of the cases that would be our free martin right you yep. have underdeveloped track somewhere else well one of the things i was going to say is let's get a baseline and the the number that i've been taught is around two percent of bovine pregnancies beef cattle pregnancies are twins but you know any veterinarian or producer with some experience would say well that that number varies a lot year that's to year a, that's an average herd. yeah <laughs> that is definitely an average meaning that there's a lot of herds where the number is zero and others where you could get three or four percent and it might just bounce around year to year because of some environmental factors we don't particularly know the effect of temperature and day length and those kinds of things on the time of ovulation as well as glucose due to nutrition as well as genetics and so it can bounce around a lot year to year but then so then this is another interesting question is so there are breeders that make the selection pressure to increase twinning because one of the challenges that beef cattle production has compared to swine or other proteins is the the slow generation turnover and, and lack of productivity and if we had twins you could conceivably get more production there there are some limits to that again so dr weber mentioned that that twinning herd up at clay center nebraska at the usda uh, research center there well as a veterinary student i got to go up there and practice my c-section skills because there were a lot of difficult births a lot of, of c-sections and those so the positive of twinning is the potential to increase production the negative is there are some negative effects. Yeah. And I would guess, you know, if they're just finishing calving, and there's no indication where this herd's located, but if they're sort of north central can or north central U.S., you know, in April, kind of this would be, so we're end of May. So they're probably, you know, average calving dates somewhere around April 15th-ish, maybe, of a 90-day calving season, say. So their peak lactation is going to be, June 15th, which lines up pretty good to peak forage quality. So the cows are pretty well aligned potentially with the environment. So, you know, I'm thinking maybe mostly a nutrient availability and it could, last and year. And it could be both. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, you know, if you're a January calver, my experience has been you got a lot less January calving cows that have twins because they're under a lot different nutritional stress than, you know, late spring calving cows. Yeah. Could be, could be a little bit of both. Yeah. So I think good answers there guys. And that provides some good feedback for them. 
appreciate Bob. Appreciate you joining us again. Great to we'll, see everybody. Yeah, we're going to have to get you back on on a more frequent schedule as much fantastic. as we can. So we we enjoy it. We've enjoyed having you listen for the last five years. As always, if you have any questions, comments, things you'd like us to talk about, send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.